Hi, John. Oh, hi, Merlin. How's it going? Oh, I'm in the upside down completely now. What? What happened? Tell me. I just my my sleep is completely upside down. I'm oh, up until John. Six in the morning every day. No, I don't know. give me the whole story. Give me the whole story. Well, Tell me what happened just, last night. I well, I just was. I laid down on the couch at about eight p.m., which is the wrong time to take a nap. Oh no! Did you know? A nap was, took, could you feel a nap coming? Oh yeah. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. see. This is I've started to do this seven thirty nap. Ugh. And then, you know, and let's see, I wake up at, whatever, 9.30. It's not like a, it's not like a 10-hour nap. No, it's but, but, nap, it's, a, but it's enough to, to take out the incentive to have a proper sleepy sleep. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, here I am, like, completely off of social media and still <laughs> staring at my phone at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm on there playing Brick Brecker. Brick-a-brick. Oh. Brick-a-brick. You should or, get um, into YouTube with me. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, YouTube, YouTube is a perfect, man, perfect. One doesn't say perfect. It's a nice replacement for social media. Here's what I watched on YouTube last night. Okay. I watched um, the supposedly greatest uh, version of Eddie Van Halen's eruption ever live. live yeah, ever I've, seen, I've, I've seen several of those, yeah. <laughs> yep. I watched uh, I watched Leonard Skinner at the 1976 California Oakland Jam, mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, play uh, Freebird. I uh, what else did I watch on YouTube last night? Um, oh yeah, the, uh, Van Halen uh, doing a cover of um, what's that song from Fair Warning? That's uh, that's like actually fun and not really <laughs> dark. <laughs> I mean, they're all dark, but what's the one that's uh, well, it's not un, not Unchained. Unchained, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Unchained is my favorite Van Halen song, and it's the moment when everything changed. It's a wonderful song, and I and there was a live version of it uh, from like eighty one or seventy nine. The one, like the that, one in like. Oakland. There's one. There's a concert up in Oakland where the, most of those videos from that tour come from, and Unchained is the one I think that actually got some MTV airplay. He yeah, says he right. says to him, "Come on, come on, Dave, give us a break." And what's he say? Oh, he says he's got one break coming up. Coming up. That's when that's everything what, that, changed. That's the one where he jumps off the jump, uh, the drum riser, and he does a full-on airborne. Yep. Mega scissor, scissor thing. Yeah. And and I think it's the one that the iconic picture is from because he did it, and you couldn't do that move twice. I don't think as well. Uh, what else did I watch on YouTube last? That's night? a very oh, good. That's a picture. very good song. It's mostly Van Halen and Leonard Skinner. Okay, okay. Every once in a while, a little Blue Oyster Cult. But I'm not watching like Hank Green talk about his stuffed animal collection or anything. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what. And I'm this supposed- is Mr. Bobo. <laughs> <laughs> like, where do I? What, yeah. what do I do? The problem is the YouTube algorithm that throws up like, <laughs> if you like this, you'll love this. Yes. It's never right. It's always terrible. It shows me things I've already seen. It shows me things that I would never watch. Yeah. Oh, oh! I watched some interview with a bunch of people about the time that Jimi Hendrix got up on stage to, quote, jam with Eric Clapton. And, and it was just like 10 British guys talking about how, like, Jimi made Eric ashamed for himself because he was so good and so fun. Hmm. And, uh, 
I was. It's nice to watch ten old British guys talk about Eric Clapton. There, there's shame. so many YouTube videos with ten old British guys, and um, here's the thing, though, John. I, I'm with you. You are at. Forgive my saying. I know you're very vulnerable right now, but you're uh, at a pretty one-on-one level with YouTube, which is totally fine. You, you, mm -hmm. when, when one watches like me, I'll go watch. I'll, I'll rewatch that version of um, uh, of that band. Uh, what's that band I like? The English band with the three guys. <laughs> uh, they do oh, that cream. song. Uh, yes, they do that song "Made cream. in Heaven." You know that that, that live performance. <laughs> and he breaks a string in the first minute of the song and covers it up for the rest of the song. What's the guy's name? Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson. He's in that band. What's the band called that did "Made in Heaven"? But here's the thing. I'm gonna look it up because it'll drive me crazy because I know this the name. This is the Mike the band. Watt thing. The Mike the Mike Watt thing where he breaks a string and he changes the string in the middle of the song. Oh no! I know he used to duct tape his pants when he got diarrhea. Be no, Bebop, Bebop Deluxe. Bebop Deluxe oh, is the name of the band. Highly recommended Made in Heaven, M-A-I-D. She's there, made in heaven. There's yeah. a, famous ver a famous story of Mike Watt, and I think I think it happened at the Showbox in Seattle, although I'm, I, I don't know for sure, but he's, you know, he's playing for the... Blah, 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 and he breaks a... Mike Watt. Mike Watt. Mike Watt. Mike Watt. He Mike Watt. No, no, no. Mike Watt. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got a lot. He's very, he's very invested in his mythology. <laughs> He he breaks a string. He breaks a bass string, which of course never happens. And, I, and this was reported to me by somebody that that claimed to have seen it. Now, hmm. just as you say, he's very invested in his image. That, that this type of thing sounds apocryphal, but he supposedly yeah reached into the back of his duct taped pants and pulled out <laughs> a string because he knew he was going to break this one. Okay, and I could see that if you're if you're hitting the same if you're breaking. Bass strings, you're probably breaking the same bass string every time, right? Yeah. I, I mean, really, if a guitarist had uh, any sense, he would keep a B and a G in his pocket. Yeah, just right in his shirt pocket, right? Yeah. Whoop. And so I don't know whether Why, he... The, the implication being, John, that he that Mike Watt from the Minutemen and later Firehose kept playing as he changed a bass string while he was That's playing. That's right. So hmm. he's playing and singing. I don't know, man. into his pocket. He strings the str threads the string through... Up to the tuning peg, and he's still st somehow managing to go like, and then, and then he's back in tune, and off he goes. I don't, I don't now, mean I to don't. be all fucking Sherlock Holmes here, John, but but one thing I know about a, about a stringed instrument is, especially one with as much tension as a bass, is when you break a string, it's gonna put everything else a little out of tune. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, maybe he's that this the the the. The musicians, and I've known a dozen of them that can and do reach up to the headstock in the middle of a performance and make micro adjustments to the tuning of their strings mm -hmm. and have a look, have a sour look on their face. And then they touch the tuning peg with the lightest effervescence. And then they have a, then their face brightens up. Oh, it was just, I was three cents shy of the uh. perfect B. And it's like, what? I don't even know what the tone knob does on my guitar. How the hell are you tuning your thing in the middle of a song, in the middle of a chord? Like that's I, that's but, that's but next level. It. Yeah, I guess. I believe it because I see him do it. I want to believe it. I want to believe it. But if Mike, I mean, Mike, the, what the story is supposed to convey is Mike Watt has spent one billion hours on tour. That's the that's the whole point of the story. 
He's loves that van. Loves that. He's always That's in the van. He gets interviewed. If you watch that Minutemen documentary uh, that I've seen many times and for which I own the poster, um, it's, it's mostly conducted in the van. Unlike the time Paul McCartney is driving a boat in, in the Beatles uh, documentary, <laughs> which I think we've discussed. Why, why is Paul McCartney piloting a boat while talking about the Beatles? He needs something to do with his hands. I watched some McCartney last night too. What did there was one where he's he's in Abbey Road for some reason. There's a film crew there and a bunch of people standing around. They, none of them seem to. There are a bunch of people in Abbey Road with Paul McCartney while he is standing there with the Mellotron, and he's explaining how the Mellotron works. Because he's Yogi Bear. It kind of is. And and there's a bunch of people. I don't know what they're doing. Coiling cables. Ten other people in the studio, and they're not crowded around the Mellotron while Paul McCartney plays. Yeah, I think of the Mellotron is more of a John thing, but I'll allow it. Well, but he's, if Paul yeah. McCartney was in there changing an electrical outlet, uh-huh. I would, I would be like, tell me more. Like, well, especially if the contractor knew to get that kind, you can attach a bubble bath to. Yeah. yeah, right. You gotta but, have that. I, 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 so, I, I, I go, sorry. Yeah. I, I all so I'm saying YouTube, is you got to get past I the music. The music me. is a good start, but, but you got to graduate to what YouTube is good at, in my opinion. And tell me what that is. Cause I, it's the, it's the second largest search platform after Google and I go on there and every time I watch a couple of things and then I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, wait, I did see an incredible thing. Oh, tell me, please. Which, well, it was a music thing. No, no, listen, listen, you're, you're missing what I'm saying. It's like, mm. you know, you, you, you got, you got to masturbate before your coitus and that doesn't okay. make masturbation bad at all. I mean, that's right. a skill for life. Teach a man to fish. I, yeah. I watch a lot of music on YouTube, and I watch a lot of things about music on YouTube. And uh, But t- tell me what you saw, and then I'll, I'll give you some oh, tips. Was just, somebody was, most of these are, are, are pretty, this type of thing are pretty good, and some of them are really good. And this was one where Mark Knopfler was sitting there with a guitar. And you know, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I went 20 years and didn't realize Mark Knopfler was British. Dire Straits just... And he just felt like such an American dude. What city? What city do you think? Uh, well, what would you like, have guessed? Like Chicago, maybe? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I sort of always felt like they were a they were like a Santa Monica band. Uh, they oh, just kind of have that, like you know, the headband. Headband. The, yep, yep, yep. And he plays that. He plays that Chet Atkins style, and it just felt like mm-hmm. you know the you know the way Credence is from california but but tried to sound like they're from louisiana yeah and yeah and sounded more like they're from louisiana than anybody from louisiana you know they just did that 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 la thing mm-hmm. yeah it just felt like it felt like that's what dire straits was they were an la band that sounded like they were from i mean they're just bakersfield inflected but not yeah. bakersfield in origin he's no buck owens no, no, but you're right. Like it just it feels like oh, his guitar teachers were a bunch of guys, you know, he he learned guitar from Glenn Campbell, you know, is what I thought. Glenn Campbell's a very then, good guitarist. He really is. Oh, oh no. I'm now we're on a rabbit hole. I just last night at four o'clock in the morning was watching the Johnny Carson show oh. where where Glenn Campbell is on there with Buddy Hackett. 
Oh, God, yes. And then, of course, Don Rickles comes out. (sighs) And Don Rickles, oh, no, it was Don Rickles came out. I think Buddy Hackett was there. Maybe and, Dom, and Dom, Dom DeLuise. Probably Dom, Dom DeLuise. Dom DeLuise is the best audience. Oh, my God. He's so funny. He loves fun. Don Rickles so much. He, so you, you're, on right you're on the right track. You're on the right track. Amy, look for old panels featuring Burt Reynolds and uh, a Don Rickles, and you're going to be a happy guy. There's some you know, real he's on the, good ones. He's on the Dinah Shore cooking show. Who is? Don, Don, Don Rickles. So I was watching one with Burt. What? Don Rickles makes a thumb gesture at him and goes, this guy over here is on the, di- is on the dining, dining shore cooking show. And the place goes nuts. Carson, fla- fla- you know, headbutts his desk. They're all like laughing so crazy. And I'm like, what the well, fuck is so funny it. about the dining shore cooking show? Well, you know, he was dating dinosaur. shore. Oh, There's some kind of, and then I was, then did you know there was a pilot for a, for a, a variety show with Don Rickles and Don, uh, Don, who, who was on, uh, get smart Don. Oh yeah. Don Adams, Don Adams, Don Adams and Don Rickles in tuxedos what? had to be 1970 and they come out and they're doing, they're doing like a monologue. Apparently, apparently Don Adams and Don Rickles, old friends, totally tight. Don Rickles said Don Adams is the funniest guy he's ever met. Wow. I watched a pilot. I know. Pilot he, I know he was real tight with uh, he and his wife were real tight with Bob Newhart and his wife, and yeah, they, they were, were genuinely were, like extremely good friends. Everybody says Don Rickles was actually a really nice guy. Yeah, one of those one of those Palm Springs things where they're all you know mm-hmm. you know what I'm go out and get a salad, yeah, that kind of thing. We we you, we you and I went through a Don Rickles thing back in the well oh, when the in the early days. Yeah. yeah, because why the hell would you do do anything on the internet where you weren't watching Don Rickles? You got to watch Don Rickles. The other one, John, if you're interested in the Johnny Carson tangent, and there are a bunch of good ones. Also, a guy who I'm just very slightly acquainted with through the internet named Don Giller has posted so much Letterman stuff. If you go to oh. the his channel, there's so much great Letterman stuff. My other tip for you, and you probably already know this, forgive me. If not, you know, the audience, can, Jonathan Winters. Go look for Jonathan Winters uh, on Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Winters and the one where where uh, then Robin Williams comes and it's the two of them. Robin like Williams the is very thirsty in that bit. He is. He really, really wants. He wants to Don Rick, or wants Don, wants uh, Jonathan Winters to like. But Jonathan Winters is really one of a kind, uh, and his his bits are such a pure form of improv. Like they're funny, but they're also just so weird. He comes out dressed as a Confederate general or something. You yeah, know, comedians from Ohio, it. I'm telling you, you're on a good track. Though. So, these are, these are good things. But here's the thing that worries me, right? Because okay, okay. here we are, we're a couple of middle-aged generation X guys. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, the writing's on the wall. It's kind of all over for us, right? Yeah. It's just like mm-hmm. when my, when my dad was 52 years old, uh, what, what, what else was going to happen? Right. He didn't, you know, it's all over. Basically. We could pedal I mean, as hard as we want, but no matter what happens, we're mostly going to coast. Uh-huh. Until it ends, and so, and so, so now, all I want to do is go back to watch the Carson show during an era when I would stay up late and sneak t- over to the to the TV that took like a minute to warm up, mm-hmm. and sit and watch the old watch Johnny Carson. And you know, even the little interstitials where he's like, "We're going to come. go to a commercial." Yep, more to come. The, you know, and then like the Doc Severinsen and the band kind of do a little pedal, and the and and there's some some crazy little little card that somebody made with the flapper on it, and uh, yeah. talking to it. That was my Twitter bio the, for a while. More to come. 
It's so great. <laughs> and and it's like, what am I doing? Like I've transported myself back to well, this happened to me when I just went to Alaska. Transported <laughs> myself back to this place and time where what? I mean, it's not like it's not like I it makes me feel warm and safe, although it does. But what is that? I don't know. Oh, I'm come on. Sure. Oh, you're overthinking. John, you're, Maybe you're an expert overthinker, but this is nuts. There's well, nothing wrong with this. Well, I know, but is there anyone left alive? Because the boomers, aren't they going back and watching uh, 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 Leave it to Beaver? Like, is <sighs> that culture, the 70s talk show culture, are we actually the audience? I mean, they, they were talking to one another. The grown-ups were talking to one another. And we were just peering over their shoulders. But are we yeah. the only ones watching it now? Are, well, you know, like I mean, gosh. Dick Cavett reruns. Oh, yeah. I think he might have a story about Groucho Marx, but I'm not sure. Um, there, <laughs> it's got to be us, right? Aren't we the only ones that uh, have that com the combination of like, it's 4 a.m. and I'm watching YouTube. I guess so. Plus. I guess so. I think it's, I, I know a lot of this stuff, a little bit of Inside Baseball. I know a lot of this stuff is tied up in weird rights things like there was a time when they used to show reruns of letterman on a and e in the afternoon and then that went away and now i, I mean i i don't know i don't even know if you can buy i think the carson group has lots of like dvds that you can buy but i don't understand why there's not a i mean the equivalent of what i would call a channel that just shows these old talk shows all the time and i I mean, again, hearing hearing Don talk about uh, this other Don, the fourth Don of the show, the guy with the Letterman stuff, he's got it all. So he's in a position where he has so much Letterman material, so well cataloged, that when something comes up in the news, or if somebody passes away, he can whip together a compilation like that day of like, you know, greatest appearances, but you know, by this person and stuff like that and highlight wow. it. I don't know if I, I imagine we are the audience for that. But it's also that, and this is a twice-told tale that bears repeating, something Letterman talks about anytime Carson comes up. Uh, Conan O'Brien talks about anytime Carson comes up. He's got, 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 a, got some great Carson stories. But, you know, yeah. there's nobody like Carson now because the landscape is entirely different. But I, I never you? get sick of hearing Letterman tell the story of the time he went out there and did his, did his bit. And Carson gave him the thumbs up and invited him over. And that's the night that his career changed. Every, yeah. So many of the people we know about today, that's comics, you know, that's Steve Martin or whoever. Like you hear all these stories about those people where they, they got their shot. Um, Louis Anderson, like there's just countless people that right. got called over to, they call it panel, called over to panel. You get to hang out. And then, and then pretty soon Letterman was the like, uh, go-to, uh, guest host for him. Like when he, because yeah, yeah, Carson right. used to be 90 minutes and then it was 60 minutes and then it was no Fridays and then it was no Mondays and they needed people mm -hmm. like Joan Rivers. And I think I want to say like Tony Randall and, uh -huh. um, and Don Rickles. You remember when Carson went to the set of CPO Sharky and <gasps> yelled did. at Don Rickles about breaking his cigarette box. I saw that live. I saw that. Oh my God. Uh -huh. So good. I don't know. I, I think we are the audience for that, but I would actually say that when, it's allowed by the various legal burgers at YouTube. That's one of the best things on YouTube is being able to go and find a bit that's been scratching your brain for years that you can't quite. There was a movie trailer in 1974 that scared the living shit out of me. 
And um, I was finally able, after years, I went, oh my God, wait a minute, YouTube exists. Why don't I see if I can go and find it? And I did, and it still scared the shit out of me. I love that we have access to that. And oh. as terrible as YouTube is in so many ways, it's like that is such a bounty of brain scratchings. I've never, this is crazy to me. I've been singing, and you know it, you hmm. know this. I've been singing Bermuda, funny, funny kind of place. Sounds like nutty, a Paul Schaefer. Nutty kind of place. Bermuda. I've is, that, uh, that is that Paul? Since, since the day that it aired in 1982 or whatever, <laughs> it's Paul. Dave said, Paul, you, uh, you were just down in Bermuda. How'd it go? And Paul, clink, clink on the piano. Bermuda. <laughs> and, I, and I was, you know, I don't know, how old could I have been? 13? Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, I couldn't breathe. I was laughing so hard at this stupid Paul Schaefer thing. And I've never gone on YouTube and looked for it. I bet, I bet it's out there. I mean, there's the Don does stuff. There's compilations of, uh, you know, the wonderful actor, Jimmy Simpson, who went on to things like Westworld and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Um, that great episode of black mirror, the star Trek episode of black mirror, Jimmy Simpson's the best. And I don't know if it was his start, but he was an actor. He had a bit called Lyle, the intern, and he's this guy who comes out there and starts smoking a cigarette and being way too familiar with Dave on air. And there's just whole <laughs> compilations of just Lyle the intern. You can find compilations of Chris Elliott as Marlon Brando. Bananas. Oh. Like you can see all of those things. And to this, to this day, to this year, I do feel like there's something they used to do on Letterman that announced the arrival of the Christmas season. And it was um, a four-syllable thing that Paul Schaefer would do. And that was Oh Holy Night as performed by Cher. And you, you knew it was Christmas time when Paul would go, Oh Holy Night! And that, I still think of that every goddamn Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I love... Oh, I... I'm, now, I'm, now it's all coming back to me. I watched, uh, I watched Carlin on, on Johnny last night, and then um, Richard Pryor came out. What, what, same did, show? And Richard did, I mean, Carson like leans right in and goes, so, uh, you know, recovering from the burns. Ooh. And, and Pryor's like, yeah, well, you know, as part of my recovery, I have to set up, set myself on fire again every night. You know, he's doing that (laughs) material, but it's already like, so it's so, it's still fresh, but it's already, he's made light of it enough that Carson feels fine Mm -hmm. about it. And, you know, Carlin's doing... Peak late seventies Carlin, but he actually, you know, he actually caught me. He made he made me laugh. He did the he did the my stuff your stuff routine. Oh yes, so a place first, for your, a place for your stuff. Place for your stuff at first, probably the first time it ever happened, oh, and God. and I laughed at it. I, I mean that thing's in my DNA. It's but still it, funny. But he, baseball baseball versus funny. football is still funny. Yeah, football yeah, the idea is to win a war. Da, 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 da. Baseball the the ob- object is to go home. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you know Richard Pryor obviously like very very thrashed. It's uh he, he's just about stir crazy is just he's there he's there promoting stir crazy. Is he's that still, is like, that when the when the incident happened? Like right before. So like before 80 it. 81 82 something like that. <laughs> he was freebasing yeah. and he got badly burnt, right? Yeah, right right around that. And uh, and he's actually just he's prior. He's just he's warm. Mm-hmm. He's he's got even after all that he's got the confidence to sit between Carson and Carlin, 
and kind of be the only person in the room that mm-hmm. anybody cares about. He was he right? was so sharp. I mean, phew. I will watch Letterman, er, young Letterman, be kind of mean to people. I would mm-hmm. watch that, and I, if it, it could be one of those things, like in the movie Until the End of the World, where I just had a headset on that just had car, uh, letter like thirty two year old Letterman being mean to people, uh, and and them kind of like. Not, not entirely being sure whether it was fine that he was doing this on late night TV. I'd watch it until I would just become Absol- a, absolutely absolutely cur- curl up in a ball. A- another another well known thing that, that that is worth repeating because it, it says a lot is that so basically Carson uh, reportedly as much as Carson could love anyone he he really he liked Letterman you know they still had a mostly sort of professional relationship Johnny was standoffish but anyway Letterman goes off his morning show fails he's going to get to do the twelve thirty slot after Carson. And it is so worldwide pants. He's a producer, but also Carson, I think, was like the big, the executive producer. And they had a rule. I'm sure you know this, but they had a rule that like basically there was a, a, I think, an overt and an understood list of people that a whole class of people that Letterman was not allowed to have on the show. In particular, anybody who was on Carson like that, we couldn't be on, but like there was just like all the big stars were basically banned from Letterman because Carson thought it was cannibalizing his, his list. And that's why Letterman had to do and Letterman and his amazing team and Meryl Marco and all those people had to basically cobble together stupid pet tricks, the man on the street stuff, uh, the guy right. under the seats, like all that stuff. But Larry Bud Melman, who's the very first person to appear in the very first episode, Larry Bud Melman announces the show. All of that, and he was a guy who worked at a drug rehab clinic, and then became <laughs> Larry Bud Melman for the show. And it was all because they had to get creative to get around the idea that they w- weren't going to be cannibalizing Carson, and in so doing, totally changed the paradigm. Well. I mean, he bit a lot of his shit from Steve Allen, which I, I think yeah. is pretty well known. But that's why they came up with that. And him being just so annoyed with everybody, not even talking here about like a Harvey P. Carr, but like he would just be so annoyed or, or Brother Theodore. <laughs> do you remember him? Yeah. I'm just thinking that. <laughs> Charles Grodin. All those amazing where, interviews. <laughs> that one with, with Harvey P. Carr, where Harvey just is not into it. Super He's mad. So He's fucking like, why mad. am I here? Why am I here? I just I don't like you. And Dave's just like, oh, so good. And I love those Harvey Picar comics. I, I oh, the, yeah. the first time he appeared on it on the on the show, I was like, I had already read them all. You'd re- you you already had you were familiar with what American Splendor, right? American Splendor because I because I'd been like a R. Crumb fanboy since early because I discovered him through those old National Lampoons that I found it. Uh, oh, and Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers and all that that I found mm-hmm. in my brother David or my brother Bart's basement. I found this box of 70s like uh, ripoff press stuff that my brother David had left there. And I was. You were, you were like the coolest uncool person in the world. This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you in part by Mac Weldon. You can learn more about Mac Weldon right now by visiting macweldon.com slash R-O-T-L. Mac Weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Their products are great, and their site is really easy to use. I should know. I, I use it all the time. It's, it's very easy. You just drag some stuff in the thing, and you know, then you get clothes. Mac Weldon believes that their stuff will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. 
They offer a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. Such a good thing to eliminate. And they want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it. And they'll just refund you. No questions asked. Not only does uh, Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. Good for working out, going to work. Uh, I, I like them for making uh, making podcasts. And uh, right now, the folks at Mack Weldon have uh, even created their own totally free loyalty program that they call Weldon Blue. Level one gets you free shopping for life. And once you reach level two by spending $200, Mack Weldon will start giving you 20% off every order for the next year. Now, here's the thing about me. You, you may not know this, but um, I'm currently all in on the uh, uh, suspenders lifestyle. I started wearing suspenders and it's just, it's been terrific for me. It's been a week now and I haven't looked back, but you know, one consequence of that is that I do have to tuck in my shirt now, you know, like a gentleman. And you know, what's great for that. The 18 hour Jersey crew neck undershirt size, large in color, bright white. It's so good. It, it, once it tucks, it stays tucked. It's so great. And, and you know, over that, I happen to be wearing, um, you know, one of their long sleeve t-shirts. You know, it's, it's Mack Weldon all the way down, as they say. So, so you know, join me. Join me, even if you don't wear suspenders. You go to MacWeldon.com slash R-O-T-L, just like it sounds, and get 20% off your first order using our very special promo code R-O-T-L, just like it sounds, R-O-T-L. MacWeldon.com slash R-O-T-L. Our thanks to Mack Weldon for supporting Roderick on the Line and all the great shows. <laughs> 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 I was like nine years old, and my brother Bart is like, "Oh yeah, that was David's stuff." And I'm like, "Can I, can I ha- look at these?" And he was like, "Be my guest." And you know, there was nobody at that time that gave it one good care about a nine year old diving into the to the deep work of of our crumb. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it sure ma- it sure made me. But the first time I saw Harvey Picar, I definitely for sure was the only like thirteen year old that was like Harvey Picar. I know every yeah, word. Right. And then he shows up on the show and I'm like, he is exactly the guy he represents himself to be. And this is, I mean, that's, so those are uncomfortable shows. Mm-hmm. And the stuff with Groden was so great because the whole bit with Groden, Groden or Super Dave, Groden and Super Dave both were great because their whole bit was that they just could not tolerate Dave in any way. And I think he really loved it. The stuff with Super Dave, um, well, oh, with uh, with friend of the show. What kind of name is that? <laughs> it's got. It must. It must. Okay, listen, listen. It's it's like show friend. We've got to acknowledge that um, uh, uh, Bob was it. Bob and Albert Brooks are both uh, relatives of uh, friend of the show, Sean Nelson, right? Yeah, that's right. Uncle Bob. That's right. And uh, we've told this story before, of course, but but uh, but Super Dave Osborne and um, Super Dave Osborne, uh, whose real name is Bob Einstein. Yep. And Albert Brooks, whose father named him Albert Einstein. His <laughs> la- their last name is Einstein. His father named him Albert, and so Albert had to take a stage name. <laughs> they're <clears throat> they're cousins by or uncles by marriage to Sean Nelson, whose Bob, Bob Einstein's wife was Sean's mother's sister. Wow! And uh, <clears throat> and they came to dinner. Sean and I were in Palm Springs at my uncle Cal's, and Sean called up his aunt and she was like oh we'll come over because i guess they all lived in the smoke she told if you told me this i've forgotten it and i am oh. riveted have i never told you this story? tell me again so sean and i are sitting so my uncle cal and my aunt julie lee you know they built that house in hawaii where we <clears throat> we used to go with my uncle jack Is uncle cal the one you got the shoes for when you were having aloha no that was uncle cal oh, i'm sorry uncle jack 
Okay. Oh, Uncle sorry. Of course. Okay. Married my aunt Judy. Lee. Who, who left? She who left his cane married. in the car? That time. That was also Uncle Jack. Okay. I, I, <clears throat> Uncle Cal. I never drove Uncle Cal anywhere. Uncle Cal and I, if we were ever alone in the room together, uh, it, it was it was very difficult to connect with Uncle Cal. Hmm. And if we were ever alone in a, in a room together. Uh, because of who Uncle Cal was, it was generally a big enough room that we didn't have to. I mean, you know, you you could talk to Uncle Cal, but he was always going to be in the kitchen sautéing mushrooms or something. Hmm. He had to be doing something. Cal was a <clears> – Cal <throat> married Julia Lee. Julia Lee was a very ambitious young woman because I think I've explained enough that my family on my father's side had – this sense of themselves that they had fallen from a high station. Right. Uh, and there was some overachieving in the past and trying to live up to sort of old expectations about what you'd be and do. Yeah. Because, because they were Southerners and at the end of the civil war, um, I, I used to mock them for their, um, highfalutin, ways you know they had the they had this, these manners that were <laughs> well you still you still see them in me right there's all this just sort of hauteur and um and i i used to feel like what the hell what the hell were we that we had any of that attitude you know the you know my grandmother was a was a like she made ends meet teaching piano um why are we one of the first families of Seattle? You know, it just doesn't, it never computed. But as I did more and more research, I realized, oh, before the Civil War, they were, you know, the, they were prosperous in the South. And what's, had, what's, and, what state? Uh, well, so they're all old Virginians that mm -hmm. then came to Kentucky. Okay. And so it was, it, they were not like, Alabama South, they were that middle, the Midwest South, or, you know, they were the first, that first group that left Virginia and went through the Cumberland Gap. Because yeah, Virginia is really right on the cusp in a lot of ways, uh, with a lot of stuff related to <laughs> the South and the war. Yeah, right. And it was, they were, <laughs> there were a know. lot of planters and landowners, but you know, they, some had quite progressive thoughts, but you know, others didn't. Yeah, there were, there were progressive views. That's right. That's where Lewis and Clark or Meriwether Lewis, uh, and so so they, so that that uh, that selves was when they arrived in Seattle in 1880. Um, after at the end of the Civil War, I think they um, they they suffered a tremendous change in fortune, uh, mm. and you know because there are a couple of I've just discovered there are a couple of houses in Kentucky that are that have big signs out front that are like the Rochester uh, so-and-so house where Hannah Charles Hannah Rochester colonel of the cavalry you know like just this crazy <laughs> they, really, they really should have proved that before they engraved <laughs> it <laughs> come on to the place and it's got the man with the thing and the ha -ha -ha. <laughs> in Danville Kentucky you know uh, and so they got they left Kentucky it, there were three brothers, and they went to Kansas City in the 1870s, and I think got to Kansas City, and they were like, this is not far enough away from Kentucky. And so they all ended up in Seattle. But that's not that far away from, I mean, my grandmother, Mary Louise, was born in 1880. 
four. So the, the fact that the, all that got transmitted to me, it was only two generations that didn't have any money or station or power. It's not like something, it's not like they were casting back to old England. Mm-hmm. They had all this attitude because they, the, because the people that were living with my father, George Alfred Caldwell Rochester had, was the son of the man that, that had the house that was all, how, how. And so, well, and also the, the, it strikes me that, uh, uh, at that time, really up until fairly recently, a lot of one's, um, relative power or I don't know, esteem, prestige was very tied to a certain community and how long you'd been there. And I, I think in America, I mean, it wasn't like being Irish or something, but if you, if you were the new family in town, you had reasons to wonder about those people because why weren't they where they're from? Why, why are you here? You're not, oh. you're not from here. Whereas back home, you got this history behind you. When you move to a new place, it, you know, it isn't like people can look you up in a, you know, the Kelly blue book of people. Right. And, it, but the, you know, the West coast and the Northwest, <clears throat> I mean, there wasn't a Seattle in 1859, right? It was, it was a brand new place. So everybody out here in 1880 was from somewhere else. It's just that, um, yeah, you could kind of come here and reinvent yourself if, unless you felt like you came from the Southern aristocracy in which place, in which case you needed to come out here and assert yourself. Hmm. And, and th- that combination of like, the, the place was filling up with people that were like, don't worry about my past. I'm a new man. Look at me. You know, I'm, I got a poke of gold and I'm ready to open a sawmill. <laughs> a poke is in a bag. Yeah. I got a poke of gold. <laughs> a poke of gold and I'm ready to, you know, go to work. But there, uh-huh, there, uh-huh. then there's my family that's like, well, when the, the civil war came through, uh, our town, um, <clears throat> we lost the plantation and nobody cried for us, right? There's, there's a, we have a letter um, in the family from uh, where General Grant pardons my great-great-grandfather. Great-great-grandfather. For, for his uh, perfidiousness? Yeah, Perfidy? For, for, having, for having taken up rebellion against these United States. Oh, that old thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. says like, <clears throat> you know, you, we're, you're we're, hereby. You, you we're know. good. <laughs> You're forgiven, but you know, you also mm-hmm. like, you don't, it's, it's sort of like the Germans in, in the Sudetenland. Nobody was really ready. No, nobody was going to return their former sh- schloss to them at the end of the war. That's a great word. But, Castle, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Julia Lee, my dad's sister. So all, <laughs> all three of them, my dad, my dad, uncle Jack and Julia Lee were raised by these people and the, they didn't have any money, but they communicated to these to their children like we are uh, people from um, from high station. And yeah, so like, like a very William to, Faulkner sort of thing. Like we used to yeah. be, we used to be a big deal. We used to be a big deal, and they could, you know, they could connect it to whatever. You know, we. I think those people looked really looked down on the Mayflower people. Like, oh, the Mayflower, uh, Plymouth Rock. Like, why would you, those merchants, we were in Virginia in 1605 or whatever. So they had a, they had a a completely different take on the United States and on, on what that was, who they were. Hmm. And my dad's reaction to it as a young man was, 
you old racists need to get with the times. You know, dad was in his generation, the, the leftist firebrand of the family and of playing basketball with the Japanese fellas. Yeah. But also like very like pre-war civil rights guy who Mm -hmm. was just like, he didn't, um, he did not get brook any of his mother's or their family's sort of old kudzu covered memories. He was, they, they called him a radical. And I, I know I've told you, like I'd walk into those rooms with him in his eighties and these old men would turn and say, you know, and these are Washingtonians too. It's not like we're, it's not like we're in Kentucky. These guys would turn and go, how's the communist party, Dave? Mm-hmm. It's just like, this is 2002. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but my, but his sister, my aunt Julia Lee, and I think Jack too, Jack was less political than dad, but, but they both like rejected all of that. They didn't reject it. Like I right, turn their back on their family and go move away. Mm-hmm. They rejected it by sticking there by, and this is my dad, not my uncle Jack, but he stood his ground. He was the, he was the 19 year old at, at dinner who stood there, you know, with his fist clenched. Eye it's to it's eye so strange arguing. to think about, to just point out the obvious. I mean, you were part of the second round of kids in the family, right? <clears throat> and it's like, you know, you only think of him as this old guy, but he was kind of a firebrand. Oh, he, more than that, you know, he was a, he went, he went up against, I mean, my dad went up against everyone. Um, he just had a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So he went up against everyone and he'd sit there and, you know, and shout him down, but he never, it never, uh, he, it never turned him into a, to a bitter man. Fair, just, fair to say that it wasn't meant personally. Yeah. Just well, in the, in mean, the sense that now, I mean like today, just as a ridiculous comparison, but today everything has such a valence and everything has such a, a feeling of be, being ultimately personal. Even the political is very personal now, but it's yeah. one reason it seems so difficult for people like uh, grandpa, uncle Joe or whomever to like want to return to the quote unquote norms of the seventies, eighties, nineties, which are not actually all that normal, but yeah, you could be civil and you could, you could be pals with Strom Thurmond and still think he's an (laughs) asshole, but it wasn't, there wasn't always this, uh, trench warfare politically in quite the way it is today. I mean, you still got to do your work. You still, if if you're a defense attorney, you still have to like know and get along with the prosecutors on some level. You can't be at war with everybody personally for your entire career, even if you are at war with different ideas than they are. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. And I think part of, part of why the left now is so mad, I think has to do with the fact that We've had all this information now for uh, 70 years, right? Like, none of these issues are mysteries to us anymore. And so from, a, from the perspective of a, of a progressive thinker, there's that additional layer of just confused frustration as to why, after all these reforms, after, the, after education is widely available, after television and the internet has brought enlightenment to the world, how can 50% of the people not get it? Mm-hmm. And that, that, and the other, that, the other half is asking the same question. Right. But, it, but, but that feeling of frustration, you know, when my dad was 
tilting against these windmills in 1947, it was plausible that most of the people he was talking to had never considered any of these ideas and were living in a, and their reactions were like, what? You know, they, Mm -hmm. they weren't coming at it with a sneer on their face where they were like, you know, you're some kind of pinky. They were coming at it like, well, that's the way it's always been. And I have no idea why you would want it to be any different. And Mm -hmm. so dad was able to maintain a sense of humor because he was the first person any of these, any of his relatives had ever heard a progressive thought from. They thought of themselves, I imagine as, well, they were all Southern Democrats. They thought of themselves as probably liberal people. It's just the well, and, with, and with what they would perceive as very modern, a modern approach to life, like yeah. we've learned from the past, but still there are institutions that run a certain way for a certain reason. Yeah. Why would you, I mean, the idea of white supremacy was a thing. Well, it was invisible to them, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean, the, their, their, their main, uh, their main issue with white supremacy was that they had fallen in, in their monetary fortunes to the point that they didn't, you know, that they had to start drumming up explanations for why they weren't the richest family in town. There wasn't any sense that now that they were, now that they had, I mean, it's not like they fell on misfortune. They lived in, in a big house, but they were, um, you know, they no longer ran the County for instance, right? But it never occurred to them that that wasn't the ultimate goal. And my dad being the first person that said, <clears throat> has it occurred to you that the, you know, my dad was a new deal product of the, of the new deal. And he's like, has it occurred to you? There should be a social safety net. And it was like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you mean? Has it occurred? No. Yeah. Try, and try so harder now, and make better decisions. That's what we do in America. Right. I mean, it, it, there's a thing sort of implicitly that's part of what makes the, um, I don't know if you exactly want to call it racism or white supremacy, but the hegemony that leads to that sort of calcified thinking has a basis in, well, it's America. Everybody's equal. Like, why don't you just work hard like I do instead of expecting a handout because of the color of your skin? Which, I, you know, I think we look at that today and think, wow, that's, there's a lot going on behind that that, that you're not copping to. Yeah, they have the they have the mythos that goes all the way back. Like we arrived on these shores with nothing but our, you know, our fancy boots, and uh, and and the land grant of ten thousand acres in the Virginia bottom. Now, <laughs> hardly anything at, at all. Now look at us. <laughs> now look right. now look what we made out of that out of that well, paucity paucity of resources. <laughs> yeah, I've been reading Shakespeare since before, and and you know. And, you just go, well, okay, whatever. But my, but Aunt Julia Lee received it, received all that information in a very different way. She was, first of all, the only daughter and she, and her mother and her aunt had, um, both, both had very different takes on it because both of them, both my grandmother and my great aunt were for their time, <clears throat> extremely independent women. But my grandmother um, did it in the kind of Marilyn Monroe way, where she she was independent by virtue of making herself seem like she needed a lot of help. Oh, like she absolutely! I see. But she yeah. was like, "Oh, I have no idea how mm-hmm. to." 
Can, well, I, get, can I get one of you big strong men to help me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, but 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 absolutely, you know, uh, running the show, and by that I mean she had limited resources and man and was trying to and managed to maintain the appearance of wealth and the the social graces of wealth, mm-hmm. but she was she was shoestringing it. Yeah. My my great aunt, in contrast, was a, a professional. Uh, you know, like a she was a woman in the 1930s and 40s who already was selling real estate and cultivating a base of clients that were, you know, that were Seattle's first families, and so was again able to port, able to maintain the 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 look and feel of people with money, but she was earning a living, mm-hmm. and and ultimately a good living. Ultimately, became one of the the rich people by selling real estate to them, and so that was you know that was an interesting kind of place to live. The in between space of like I'm still a genteel woman, but I'm also and and we do have money, but it's the result of my labors. Mm. And my aunt Julia Lee watched these two women in her life, and she said, "A, I'm never going to be poor." <laughs> Because I see my mother. As God is my witness, I, I'll never be hungry again. I'll never be hungry again. Mm-hmm. And B, I see what my aunt is doing. And that's the path. But what I'm not going to do is marry a guy like my Uncle Al, who Uncle Al, <laughs> Uncle Al is a man of leisure. And that's not how you make a bunch of money. <laughs> Is marry a man of leisure. Uncle Cal ended up being, you know, on the <laughs> should have told my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you in part by Squarespace, oh, our old friends at Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com slash supertrain. There are so many things that you can do with Squarespace. You know, primarily you're going to be creating a beautiful website. It'll turn your cool idea into your new home on the web. You can showcase your work. You can have a blog or publish other kinds of content, beautiful galleries. You can sell products and services of all kinds. You can promote your uh, physical or online business. You can even announce an upcoming event or a special project. All this, I mean, the, the better question is, what can't you do with Squarespace? Uh, we don't have time for that, but, but really, there's not much you can't do. It's really easy. You drag, you drop, you got a website. How do they do this? It's a good question. They do this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They have powerful e-commerce functionality to let you sell anything online. You get the ability to customize the look and feel, settings, products, and more with just a few clicks and a couple little drags. You can can preview it all while you're making it. You can see what your site's going to look like on different kinds of of dinguses. It's, It's amazing. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. You know, you get a new way to buy domains, choose from over 200 extensions, of course, they have analytics that help you grow in real time and built-in search engine optimization, or SEO as I call it. It's free and secure hosting, right? Nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And plus, they have their 24 by 7 award-winning customer support. They're encouraging folks. you got to make it yourself. Easily create a website by yourself for yourself. This is really, it, it's for you. You know, the future's coming. Make it brighter. It's Squarespace. So right now, you go, you, you go check out squarespace.com slash supertrain. You get a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your beautiful new site, use our offer code SUPERTRAIN. And that is going to save you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Listen, 
I'm a big fan. You know, you're using Squarespace right now. It's where Roderick on the line has always been, and uh, I think probably where it always will be. So, so you know, Squarespace, they're the best. Check them out. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the line and all the great shows. <laughs> Cal ended up being on the Seattle City Council here, and it was only because his brother – I have the letter. His brother wrote him a letter in 19-whatever, 49, and said, you think – you know, you're you're a man of 45 years old, and you – Think you're you're retired? Mm-hmm. Oh um, God, too soon. <laughs> <laughs> like, Why are you bringing this up on this show, John? I know, I know. Ugh. You know, and, and his forty-five. Brother, huh? <laughs> well, and and his brother, the the elder Junius, he married the girl that inherited the Buster Brown shoe fortune. Oh, so it's not like he's got any way to talk. Mm-hmm. He's sitting in some house in Connecticut, you know, like writing his brother like. You need to, boy. You need to get up. Uh-huh. And it's like, and do what? Marry a marry a rich lady? Yeah. Nobody had any respect for for old Uncle Junius, except he had all this money. So you know. So what did Al do? He gets up and runs for the Seattle City Council. Now that's not a way to make money. Hmm. Except it was because again, it bolstered their added their their image as mm-hmm. a as people of of means. Well, Andrew Lee was not going to let any of this get in her way. And she found Cal Knutson in at the University of Washington, their whatever, freshman year, and she saw in him something. And she said, this guy. Hmm. And they got married. She sounds like a pretty smart cookie. Oh. They got married, and she... And I, I don't know whether this was an explicit conversation, but knowing my Aunt Julia Lee, I... 98% think it was an explicit conversation where she said, you get us there. You get us to the top and I will take care of everything else. Hmm. And Cal went, uh, all right. And Cal had grown up as a, as a boy, like picking strawberries in the, in down in Kitsap County or whatever. He was a local Washington kind of Scandinavian who was, you know, like not a sharecropper exactly, but he was Calvin, a, Calvin, was, Can, Calvin Knudsen, C Calvin Knudsen. What's the C for? C, oh, I'm sorry. Not Calvin Calvert. C Calvert Knudsen. That's a, that's a uh, terrific name. I knew in my whole life. I have no idea what that first C is. Mm-hmm. C, Cal, hmm. C Calvert Knudsen. <laughs> uh, and what he did was get into timber. Oh, is this the Weyerhaeuser connection? He went down. Uh, he went down to uh, Aberdeen, uh, home of uh, home of Nirvana, the home of the Cobains. Uh-huh. And uh, Aberdeen was a lumber town, and he got into logging, and then you know parlayed that into he had a poke of gold and bought a, <laughs> a sawmill. And over the course of his career. You know, he ended up being the CEO of Macmillan Bloedel. He was a on the board of Warehouser. He was a he was a lumberman, and but an exec, you know, on the executive. Yes. And so he did. He made he made a fortune, and Andrea Lee then turned that into social respectability by wow. the same methods that her mother and her aunt used. But Julia Lee had the money, so Julia Lee donated to the art museum and Julia Lee hosted the benefits and, you know, became and was 
and then created around her side of the family this incredible uh, temple of, of, of class and wealth and taste that, that sitting on my father's lap, and my dad, of course, was the prince of all of those people. They all, that whole family just, just loved him. He was the light in the room. Hmm. But he rejected yeah. the he rejected the premise of taste and class. And so there was the so he was the light in the room, but also a thorn in the in the side mm-hmm. of the of myth. Well, Julia Lee died unexpectedly, and left Cal alone with the four kids who were grown at the time. You know, like young adults. But Cal had done this. He he had fulfilled his half of the bargain. He'd made the millions. He and she had elevated them to stature. But Cal didn't want to host any cocktail parties. That was he didn't want to. He he just wanted to be. My dad at one point said he, he wanted to be Cal, in the kitchen uh, sautéing mushrooms. Sautéing mushrooms. Well, he didn't mm-hmm. want to talk. No. My dad said, Cal, you know you've got uh, all this money. Why the hell? Don't you stop and enjoy yourself. And Cal said, well, you never know when you're going to need more money. <laughs> I guess that's one way to look at it. You know, and my dad turned to, you know, I was sitting there pretending to read a magazine and he turns and looks at me and he's just like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? You know, it, it was so antithetical to the way my dad thought. He Absolutely. Like, you already right. have too much money. And Cal was like, well, you never know when you're going to need a little more. So fast forward to Palm Springs, 1999 or 2000, 2001, Sean and I are on tour, just the two of us driving across America in a car. I don't remember what, I don't remember why, how or why, what we were doing. But I go. You know, Cal is down here in Palm Springs. Now, Julia Lee has died. Hmm. They built themselves a house in Palm Springs that they were supposed to retire together to. And then she died suddenly. So they have this this beautiful home and um, in the Palm Springs style, you know, an indoor-outdoor house. And now Cal it's just so, sort of— It is so hot there. It's so hot. It's unrelentingly he, hot there. And Cal's doing the, the Seattle snowbird thing, right? In the in the winter, he's in Palm Springs, and in the summer, he's up in Seattle. And, you know, and yes, and and he's in this circuit, and the Warehouser family, and the you know the Boeings, are they're all they're all friends with each other, and they're all they all migrate to Palm Springs at the same time, and they have the same cocktail parties down there that they have up here in Seattle in the summertime. And Sean and I call up Cal and we go, hey, we're driving through. And Cal, again, like if he's not sauteing mushrooms, he doesn't know what to do with his hands. And, <laughs> and I never thought that I was never 100% sure that Cal recognized me from time to time. Like I'm not sure that he had. Was there a lot of family to keep track of? No. It just wasn't his jam. I, just don't, I don't think he had object permanence when it came to humans. Interesting. But also, I mean, I talked to his youngest son. That was Julia Lee's job. Julia Lee's job, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I talked to his youngest son one time. He and I were about 10 years apart, but we were were close. 
you know, con- considering that the cousins in my family aren't that close. We were close-ish, although one day he stopped calling me and I haven't talked to him since. But he, I said to him... <laughs> we call that the Cincinnati eventuality. <laughs> I said to him one time, like, you know, your dad was like this incredibly successful business person. He was on the boards of directors of all these things. He was, he was, uh, he started a half a dozen businesses that were all prosperous. Like, what did, you know, what did you learn from him? Like, what, what did you guys talk about? Because I'm thinking in terms of my relationship with my dad, where my dad never learned a single thing that he didn't immediately tell me about. Um, I mean, my dad was constantly talking to me like, well, here's what you do in this situation. Mm-hmm. And I would go, huh, that seems like bad advice. And he's like, well, <laughs> but, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> but, uh, but my cousin <laughs> said, um, yeah, my dad never taught me anything. Wow. And he said, yeah, I mean, I would go in and say, hey, dad, I'm having this problem uh, at what should I do? And he would go, well, you'll figure it out. Uh, a phrase I learned in the 90s, um, emotionally distant, it sounds like. Well, yeah, but also Scandinavian. Oh, and the Scandin, the Knudsen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he didn't want to, I don't know what, honestly. I mean, I, and this was my experience of him too. I would go to him and say, hey, Uncle Cal, I'm just having a, you know, I had I had some questions about uh, lumber, your your career, <laughs> or, mm-hmm. you know, like you were there at the dawn of all this. Like, I, I, how did these businesses work? And he would go, oh, I don't remember. Hmm. I'd go, you don't remember? You're still in these businesses. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to describe. Hmm. So a, to- a complete cipher. Well, so he, so we call him and he's like, oh, well, if you're in Palm Springs, you know, I suppose you should stop by. Mm-hmm. And so Sean calls his aunt, his mother's sister, with whom I think he's close. And she says, oh, well, we should meet for dinner. Oh, boy. Wow. That's exciting. And so, yeah, so, uh, so we're at Cal's. We're standing there, you know, milling around the, the swimming pool while Cal sautés some mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and the thing was, Cal got into wine. And that was how he dealt with, the, um, with people with money. Cal got into wine. He got into good wine. He bought a winery. He... To, you know, he got into wine to the degree uh, that he was the, you know, he had his own label, right? Knutson Arath uh, was his was his label. The his kids have now relaunched the Knutson brand. What happened was Knutson Arath in the seventies and eighties uh, was a viable vineyard and then they launched argyle champagne which you may have seen which was a very um which you know was a very fashionable champagne on the west coast for a while you know whatever champagne sparkling wine sparkling wine yeah. and and then cal leased all of his land and his tasting room and all that to arath and arath continued and made made a successful career for himself in wine but what it turned out, and this is some I thought that the Knutsons had gotten out of it. Well, no, what turned out is they owned all the land and all the grapes. And they were just leasing it to other 
vineyards. And the, the, the kids, Cal's kids, he had four kids. They got together 10 years ago and said, we're just going to take all this back. Like when all these leases expire, we're taking it all back and we're going to relaunch Knutson vineyards. And, you know, and we're making these Pinot Noirs again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're making a good go of it. Uh, but the property there, and it's in central Oregon, around Gresham and, and Dundee, uh, you know, they just own these rolling hills with these grapes. And that was how Cal, that was how Cal put himself into all those rooms because mm. he could sit there when he wasn't uh, sauteing mushrooms, he was mm -hmm. swirling, casually swirling wine in a glass and like sniffing it. And he would have something to say about its nuttiness and, and overtones of leather Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my, you know, and my aunt was swooping around, you know, um, Lady Elaine, you know, just like really, really uh, vivacious. And Cal could just be whatever, a regular you know. dinosaur. <laughs> so, so Cal, Sean and I are sitting there talking to Cal and Cal says, and Sean says, well, we're going to have dinner with my aunt and uncle. And Cal says, well, invite them over. And there's this moment of like, invite them over. Oh yeah, can I have him come over? You know, something for Cal to do. He's got he he wants something to do. Somebody's got to eat those mushrooms. So Sean's like, okay, and I didn't know. I don't think, you know, Sean would periodically refer to Albert Brooks as a relative, and you know, Sean's got also a lot of strange stories about his family and old money and the kind of weird. Like, you know, their house in Nashville, readout number three, readout number four, whatever that house is, where you drive up and up and up this mountain through all these subdivisions, and then you turn into what looks like somebody's garage, but it's a little road that goes between two condos. What? And then, That's so you, cool. Have I never described this to you? It's just like, like a Peter Sellers movie. Whoa. What's that Peter Sellers movie where... Uh, where he's the, he's kind of a, he's the, the, the scion of a, of a rich family, but he's, he's incompetent and yet he kind of stumbles into, it's being there. Is that the Oh movie? yeah. Where he's the, he's the, um, man of the house, the butler uh, for this rich yeah, guy right. yeah, in DC. Well, it's, um, it's a, th there's a scene in that movie where you're driving down some, some, uh, you know, Highway 101 type of thing. There's motels and and uh, and fast food restaurants, and you're just in that kind of junky American corner. And then you turn off of that street in through what looks like a just a hole in a in a in a brick wall. And then all of a sudden, you're on this palatial estate that was built a long time before the the trashy commercial boulevard. Had gone. That's what's that's one thing that's so. Oh, such a good movie. And it's so jarring when Chance first uh, has to leave the house and yeah. he's been in the house for years and he is how he is. And oh, what a delightful movie. And when he goes outside and he's, he's suddenly just dropped into essentially urban DC, which was just yeah. outside the door in some ways the whole time. But now he's got to navigate through that. But of course he's Chance the Gardener. So, you know, he just rolls. <laughs> well, and so I would love that. I would love, first of all, I would love a readout. Is it R-E-D-O-U-B-T? 
Yeah, and it was one of the readout. One of the I want to readout. I know. One of the hilltops. It's called readout number four because it was a. It was one of the places. <laughs> a little bit of readout in my life. The Sorry. Confederate <laughs> Army, you know, was shelling the Union as they came through the valley from this readout. It was one of the one of the places for the, from the Battle of Nashville. And so, yeah, yeah, you're driving up this hill through the through these rows and rows and rows of kind of middle class townhomes. And the first time I went up there, I was like, "Where are we going?" Like. I do not picture your family living in one of these like row houses. And he, Sean was like, just keep driving and drove and drove. And it's like, I, you know, we're just so far into a very, very strange, like beehive kind of suburbia right now. I'm really not getting it. And then he's like, take a, take a right here. And we go through this little, you know, basically between two dumpsters, which is that, that great talk show. Oh, is that Galifianakis? Yeah. And um and through some little indis indis non. It sounds, sounds John. It's in my head, this is how simple I am. It reminds me of the Bat Cave. In the sense a, that you like you're driving down a road, and then like you go over the thing, and then like like a hole in the cave opens up, and now you drive the Batmobile into there. It's it's yeah. this sounds like something from like it sounds virtually European. It's one of those like yeah, it's a it's a blockade on the road and the and it, and it's covered with ivy, but then it falls down and you drive over it and then it flips back up. Exactly, it's very much like that. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> God, I've never. So I still want a monk hole. I still yeah. want passages behind the walls, but now I also want to read out with a bat cave. You get, you go through this this aperture really, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you are on the park like grounds of the Nelson family. Mance, wow. where, you, where it is the entire hilltop, Jeez. and there are townhomes, you know, stretching to infinity at your ankles. But as soon as you're through the portal, you can't see them anymore because it is a for a lush, lushly forested, um, you know, many, 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 many acres of forest surrounding the house, which sits up at the top. It's like um, so, it's like the Miyazaki movie with Laputa, like the you know castle in the sky. <laughs> it, it's a it's a it's a very much a castle in the sky and a rambling, weird one of those houses where you're like another bedroom. It's like well, that's the bedroom that great uh, great aunt Jane <sighs> so disoriented. Uh, you know, had like eleven parrots or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, but so here we are at so I, but but Sean, you know, he's very cryptic. Uh, sometimes about his family, he, you know, stepfather and his, his, his other, his father was a, was not a Quaker, but a Mennonite, some, like a, yeah, so, not a Mennonite, but like somebody that's a member of one of those, like, like, of a, but like a friends adjacent. Uh, yeah, group. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, anyway, we're sitting there with uncle Cal, not sure. None of us are sure what to do with our hands. And the doorbell rings, and you guys, in comes. You guys want some mushrooms? They're just like, rip, rip. well, none of us drink anymore, so yeah, uh, can't do the thing with the wine. The doorbell rings. In comes Sean's aunt, and she's a very, you know, beautiful, rings on every finger kind of uh, blonde woman of means from the Los Angeles area, and you know, and a, as a result, like fit and tan and dressed in white and used to being 
the center of the uh, uh, in the uh, center of attention. Mm-hmm. And then behind her, here comes Super Dave Osborne. Oh my God! And I'm like, I would lose it. I said, Sean, is that huh? Super Dave? And he's like, Oh, I didn't tell you. She's married to Bob Einstein. And he had said <laughs> oh, that, that old thing. <laughs> And I was like, he had said Bob Einstein. And I was like, yeah, sure. I have Bob Einstein. It's fucking yeah, Super Dave. It doesn't Osborne. say Super Dave on the mailbox. <laughs> and, and he comes in with his like, oh, you know, he's that, that, that husky, tall. that husky horse voice of his husky horse. And just like his kind of, you know, that way Super Dave had of just being like, he just seems like he's in a different time bubble than you're in. He's so dry. Like, yeah. And, and, and really, you know, he's, I mean, they're, he's, he, Sean he's, and I he's officer both. Judy. I mean, like he's, yeah. I mean, back to the Smothers brothers, like he's, oh my God, he's comedy royalty to me. He is. And, and also enormous, right? Like Sh- Sean and I are big. Sean's yeah. bigger than me. Super Dave is bigger than us both. And, uh, but he doesn't do the thing. He doesn't take up the oxygen in the room, right? His, mm. his wife is the one that's, that's doing the talking and is making them making the action happen. Cal takes up no oxygen in the room. And, uh, you know, Sean and I are used to, uh, fi- you know, fighting over it like two grizzly bears with one salmon. If, <laughs> if, there's, if the attention is the salmon, Sean and I are two grizzly bears, and we fight over it by neither of, you know, by, by just batting at it, you know, just slightly batting at the fish. It's out of the water, but... Neither of us are really going to take a big bite of it. And so Super Dave, you know, sits down and we start having polite cocktail conversation. Well, Cal wouldn't know. Cal's never heard of the Smothers Brothers. Like, Cal wouldn't know who Super Dave Osborne is. And they start talking and he's like, where are you, uh, you know, what's your story? And he says, well, you know, my name's Bob Einstein and I'm so forth and so on. And my Uncle Cal goes, Einstein? What kind of name is that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, <laughs> what did Super Dave say? <laughs> you know, it's the kind of question that that generation. Uh huh. That could go a lot of different ways. Well, let's and, just put it this way: thing. he's not supposed to be eating Palestinian chicken. That's for sure. Yeah, that generation. <laughs> like, that's an anti-Semitic remark. Oh, right? it's or, super coded. Yeah. Right. Like one of these. Like Einstein is that. Mm-hmm. What's well, like when you say to somebody a thing you used to ask, say to people all the time, and it, it, the thing is, I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to say a sentence here, and think about how this applies based on who's saying it and the person to whom they're saying it. Where are you from? Uh huh. No, no, no. I mean, you know, where are you from? Well, yeah. Which from usually LA. means you're no, waiting for like, them to say India or Pakistan or what Kenya. You know what I mean? It it has yeah. this very weighted, and of course the the punchline becomes well Chicago mostly outside Chicago. Like, no, 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 no. But like, no, no, no. where's your Where family you? from? Yeah. What are you? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of those kinds of conversations. I want to know whether or not I can make a Pollock joke around you. <laughs> and so there's this, you know, there's a Sean and I both go, oh God, like Ooh. roll our eyes. Yeah. And Bob Einstein has been living in. Hollywood his whole life and living in and coming to Palm Springs. He's not phased by this at all. That's not his first day. (laughs) Not his first day either. (laughs) And, you know, and Cal has that, has that unreflected upon, uh, 
anti-Semitism that just comes from not having ever thought about it or been exposed to any Jewish people. And, you know, it's just like the, that's just that generation and how they thought about the world. And yeah, that, there's you know, like, basically a basic sense of otherness. There's us and then there's yeah. everybody else. Wait a minute, and, how, and I don't think it has that same valence. It's not white supremacy, but it is. Ve- that's very much that was in the water everywhere was you needed you needed a way to decode what to do with this person because you do not deal with a person like this often enough and you need to know what slot to put them in and kind that, of. i mean know, am, my, I, am my, i overstating it no that's that's right i mean my dad quit my dad quit the seattle tennis club in 1950 i don't know what five because they didn't allow jews and my dad's best friend in law school was black. We've talked about Judge Tanner quite a bit. Oh, he was he was he was huge. Tanner was a big deal, but in the fifties, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that he had graduated from the University of Washington Law School was still fairly notable, right? And there was a generation of black judges in Seattle that all came from University of Washington and Gonzaga during that era, the law school at Gonzaga, and they were like a new generation of mm-hmm. of. Uh, like young lawyers and dad was dad felt like we're the young lawyers and how dare you keep us at, and, but he grew up at the tennis club, right? So he felt like it was his, he was, was there for the sports, club. not for the status. Yeah. yeah. He was there for the sports. His, his mother was there for the status and his aunt. But when he realized that he couldn't bring his friends there, he, you know, he, it was like he returned his MBE. And the Seattle right. Tennis Club is a place that even now, you know, the waiting list is like 10 years long to get into it. Hmm. And he was like, I renounce my citizenship mm-hmm. in, this, in this horseshit organization. But again, Cal and Julia Lee didn't, you know, mm-hmm. and, then, and, and they right. watched him go and they were like, well, that's David. Yeah. But so Bob Einstein, you know, handles it with, with flair and tells this anecdote about how his father named them, named him Robert Einstein. But Rob, named Robert his, and Albert. Robert, uh, but named his brother Albert Einstein. That's wild. And that, that Albert Brooks spent, you know, the first 20 years of his life as Albert Einstein. <sighs> every single person he met, every day in school, he was Albert Einstein. How do you until, do that to somebody? Until he got old enough that he could that he could change his name. And his dad, you know, according to Super Dave, his dad thought it was hilarious. And the, the name and, calling naming him after yeah, the physicist. Naming his son naming his son Albert Einstein. He thought that was hilarious. <sighs> and uh, you know, and and Albert Brooks didn't know how do you complain? Um and so, so when, did he change, did he change heard, it when he went into, well, I'm guessing probably writing. I don't, I don't know Robert, Albert Brooks's full story. I, I, yeah, I pick up with Albert Brooks when he was doing stuff for SNL in the seventies. I think he, I think he changed it as soon as he could. Mm-hmm. But when you look at, when you think of his humor and then you realize like, because all that kind of the shy awkwardness he brings to his performances and that kind of, you know, that, that, undercurrent the the burbling do you think about his character even in i mean you got of course the brilliance of something like defending your life but think about his character in broadcast news Mm -hmm. it's pretty he's pretty coded as like a what we used to think of as a neurotic jewish guy but you know imagine him 
now in the imagine that character in the context of like every day at school, like, hey, Albert Einstein. Ugh, God. Really, really. But then, so Sean and I are there, and Sean has never actually spent this much time with Super Dave. He's, it's always like, he's always at some big gathering and he's over there in the corner. But here we are. This is the dinner. You know, it's me, Sean, <laughs> Cal, <laughs> and Mr. Super and Mrs. And Super Dave. <laughs> And we're trying to find a conversation. Through oh, this. geez, that's going to be in the in the quadrants for everybody. Oof. What are we? To, what are we going to talk about? Right? Oh, and big so, band music. Big band music. I think everybody just Artie Shaw. Artie Shaw. Let's, Wait, Artie let's, Shaw. Let's, what kind of name is that? Artie Shaw. At Ellis Island, they arrived as the uh, the Clarinetowitz family. 